so good to be worshiping. You made it, Grand Fondo, you crossed Main Street. We're so glad to have you here. For all of you joining us online today, we're so glad to have you worshiping with us. I know some of you are at home, uh, not at home, you're actually in Grand Fondo right now, uh, biking, and so we're so glad to have you doing that. And uh, I'll tell you why in a few moments, I'll get there in a second. But uh, so glad how you're worshiping with us today. Are you having a good weekend? Yeah. All right, good. Have you ever noticed that there are some times when you are surrounded by things on a daily basis, on that everyday routine, uh, things become familiar, right? As things become familiar, they can blend into the background. Uh, things that have been designed uh, with a purpose, maybe with intention, it kind of goes unseen and, and ignored and just kind of like fades into the background. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, there's a whole thing on social media. If you're on social media, anyone join Threads this weekend? If you know what Threads is, another platform for you through Facebook and Instagram, and now you can thread yourself. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, out, I'm not... Uh, anyways. I'm already unhinged. I'm unhinged, Ralph. And guess what? I broke my watch yesterday, so I'm not on a time limit either. So there you go. Let's go. Here's the thing, sometimes people, things have been designed with intention and purpose and we become so accustomed to them that we can actually lose the, uh, the understanding of what they were designed for. There's a whole thread on social media and it's called uh, I Was Today Years Old. Have you ever seen I Was Today Years Old? I Was Today Years Old is meant to be a collection of things that you never knew until today. Things you just learned today. Now, I was looking at some of these things, and uh, how many know that I was today years old when I learned that there are loops on a shopping cart? Anyone ever seen a shopping cart? We see a lot of shopping carts around Penticton, uh, all over the place. And on these shopping carts are loops. Do you know what those loops are for? They're to put your bags on. Did you know this? I never knew this. I was today years old when I learned that they're to keep the egg bag from being on the bottom of the car. You're supposed to hang it on the loop. There you go. Anyone, uh, a pen. Have you ever had a pen? Anyone, you're like a, the pen chewer. Anyone chew the caps of your pen? Anyone? Anyone have a coworker who chews their pens and then you go to borrow it and it's all like nasty and gnarled on the end? Well, they had so many people that were chewing their pens that they've had a few instances where people swallowed the pen cap and choked on it. Did you know the hole in your pen cap is so that you could breathe in the event that you were to swallow your pen? <laughs> That's a true story. Right there. There you go. You were today years old when you learned why there's a hole in your pen cap. We get so accustomed to things, right? They, they become familiar to us. And over time, the purpose and the design and the intent of that thing can be forgotten. I was going in the archives looking at some older uh, things, and I was wondering if any of you know the purpose or what these things are for. Uh, here's my first picture. Anyone seen one of these in a while? Anybody know what that is? That's a hand drill, right. For before we had Black & Decker, we had the like, Arm & Hammer, right? There we go, right? That's a hand drill. All right, that was a little easy for some of you. How about this one? It's a bed warmer. That's right. Before we had central heating, you put some coals in your bed warmer and put it at the foot of your bed. Here's one for you. I've heard some of you, some of you got it. This is the original hearing aid. This is an ear trumpet. Speak a little louder, I can't hear you. Right there. 
All right? And here's the last one. I know, what you, I know you know what this is. All right? I know you know what this is, but do you know what it was originally intended for? Plato, you think it's a kid's toy, right? You think this is for like keeping kids quiet during kids' church uh, or something like that? Uh, Plato was originally called Cut-All, and it was designed to be a wallpaper cleaner. That's what it was originally designed for, a wallpaper cleaner. But its intent and design and purpose had been repurposed and forgotten. I love in the Bible, my favorite verse, and I've told you this, my life verse is Ephesians 2.10. It says, for we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. How many know that God has a design and a purpose for your life? God has an intention for you and for me. Now here's the thing, I remember graduating from high school and I remember wanting to serve God with my life and I remember being so fearful and afraid that I might make the wrong decision on where I should go to university and what I should do with my life. As a, as a Christian high school student, I wanted to serve God, but I was afraid that somehow I was gonna mess up the plans of God if I didn't choose correctly. Can anyone relate? For me, it was almost like I was paralyzed. I didn't want to make a misstep, right? I didn't want to make a wrong decision and miss, miss out. For a lot of us, I think that we hear that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And for some of us, like, that can be paralyzing. We think that this is a grand and mysterious plan. You're like, I'm waiting for God to reveal for me his plan for my life. One day the heavens are going to part. I'm going to be on, the, on top of Mount Campbell over here. And like, Ooh, the heavens are going to part. And God's going to say, this is my plan for your life. How many know that some of us think that God has a grand, mysterious plan for us? And at the same time, we become so familiar with hearing God has a plan for us that we kind of go through the day-to-day, every day, and it's just kind of lost on us. Uh, you know, it kind of just blends into the background and it can be taken for granted or even ignored. But here's what I've discovered. It's not about being paralyzed trying to find the grand plan of God. And it's not about, uh, you know, just doing the routine and forgetting he has a plan for my life. But this is what I've discovered. When you're intentional about honoring God with each moment, no matter how insignificant, and when you're intentional about honoring God with every decision, no matter how big or small, the cumulative effect is that you'll fulfill God's plan for your life. How many know that God cares less about where you are and what you're doing as opposed to who you are, where you are, and what you're doing? God has this plan for your life. And yeah, there's this, a specific giftings and opportunities for us to discover and grow into, but I think we often complicate the things that God intends to be simpler. His plan for your life is a simple plan. It's a simple plan. You can walk out of here today knowing God's plan for your life. Yeah, there's some specifics and details that he'll lead you in along the way. I always like to think of a parked car. If you've ever tried to move a parked car, it doesn't move, right? But you get a car in motion and it steers much easier. As we're following God's plan for life, we say, God, I want, to, uh, I want to worship you. I want to honor you in every moment, no matter how insignificant. I want to worship you and honor you in every decision, no how big or small. Then I'm in motion in God's plan and he can steer me towards more specific things and opportunities. 
Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we kicked off a new series last uh, week called Summer on the Mount. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at what has famously been called uh, uh, one of Jesus' uh, greatest teachings. It's been called a Sermon on the Mount. And in these three chapters of Matthew 5 uh, to 7, it's the longest, the biggest compilation of Jesus' teaching that we have. And uh, scholars have debated whether it's one long teaching that was recorded or whether it was many pieces put together. But the overall consensus uh, is that it, it is probably one long teaching that Matthew has recorded. He's taken notes. And it's because Matthew has been traveling with Jesus, he's, he's able to add little emphasis and little flourishings of other teaching along the way. Uh, and, and what we noticed is that Jesus gives this teaching. And what we talked about last week is that every great communicator starts with a good hook. I mean, he wants to get the people to go, hey, I, I'm interested in what you're talking about. I, I, he wants to get your head nodding. I can relate to that. And so Jesus started out last week talking about the people God blesses. And we talked about how the people of Jesus' day and like us today, we go, whoa, I want to know who God blesses. I want to be a part of the people that God blesses. And so we discovered last week that God's blessing wasn't exclusive to a specific kind of person. It wasn't exclusive to people in specific sets of circumstances. But it's, it's to the people whose lives have been shaped and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about last week about being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit are those who have recognized their need for God. To be poor in spirit means that I've responded with repentance towards my sin. And sin, as I've said before, is really our disposition, our autonomy away from God. The sinful deeds, the sinful actions originate. They're the byproduct of us saying, God, I'm doing life on my own uh, way. I'm leading myself. And the result of that is sin. And so Jesus said the beginning of blessing is to be poor in spirit, to recognize our insufficiency, to recognize our need for help, the need for a savior. When we lose our pride and when we lose our self-sufficiency, when we literally come to the end of ourselves, I've talked to some of you and some of you have told me your story. You say, I literally have come to the end of myself and that's where I met Jesus. That's the place that we need to be in. So last week we talked about being an image conscious culture. We need to be counterculture. We need to be character conscious Christians, not uh, aspiring for other people's approval, but seeking only God's approval. Now, we started out last week with the character of those who belong to the kingdom of God. And so we're going to continue in Matthew 5 today. And if you want to turn with me in your Bible, to Matthew 5, 13. Uh, we see Jesus is going to move from the character to the calling of those who belong to the kingdom of God. The calling, the intention, the purpose of those who follow Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way that your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Today I want to tell you that God's purpose and plan for your life is that you would stay and live salty and lit. 
salty and lit. Some of you are chuckling. You know that salty and lit has an urban slang to it. Some of you uh, have a different understanding of what salty and lit is. But we're going to talk about being salty and lit. For those of you that are younger, uh, you might not know that to be lit was uh, traditionally meant to be inebriated. That we're not talking about that. For some of you older people, some of you older people, you need to know that younger people say think lit means to say awesome. It's on fire. It's exciting. Church was lit today, right? We don't want to be lit old school. We want to be lit new school at church. But we can all agree that to be salty means to be unpleasant, right? It means to have a bit of an attitude. But we're going to talk about that. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus wants you to be salty and lit. Jesus wants you to be salty and lit. For those of you watching at home, Jesus wants you to be salty and lit. You know, I love how Jesus uses everyday household items. He, he uses them to describe the purpose and the impact that we're to have on the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt's one of those things I think we take for granted. It's just about everywhere, right? We go to the restaurant, it's on the table, and if it's not, you ask for it, right? You probably have some extra pockets in your glove box of your car. Speaking of glove box, right? The original intent and purpose of the glove box to put your gloves in it, right? Your driving gloves. I should get some driving gloves, like the little fingerless ones driving around my Honda Civic and the Okanagan. I don't know. <laughs> Let's bring back driving gloves, right? You probably have some salt packs in there from a forgotten trip at the drive-thru, you know, months ago. Or if you're like, you know, uh, Pastor Ralph was last week getting a burger. <laughs> eating the burgers, got the salt. Anyways, so I don't mean to, I, sorry. Carrie's going to get Ralph in trouble after this, so it's probably a vegan soy burger or something like that. It's good for your heart. <laughs> Salt's an everyday item for us, isn't it? It's cheap. I was looking, it was like 78 cents a kilogram. I was looking at it last night online. I could get it. Salt, but salt was commonly used in the time of Jesus teaching as well. It had a much higher value, a much higher potential in Jesus' day. It, it was more of a precious traded commodity. I think Jesus, he's saying, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, yeah, he's going to talk about purpose in a moment, but I think he's also trying to ascribe value. He's talking about the properties of salt, but he's also talking to them about the value that they have, the honor and, they were, and their worth. Your honor and worth to Jesus far exceeds any task or accomplishment that you can do or fulfill on Jesus' behalf. Jesus loves you and values you for who you are. You're his creation, his child. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Have you ever heard that phrase that someone's worth their salt? It's debated about how we get to that, that phrase. Uh, some uh, historians believe that the Roman government would uh, pay their soldiers uh, a stipend uh, towards buying their necessities, including salt. And from the word, uh, the, the, the Greek word we get, uh, or sorry, it's the Latin word is sal, and so the stipend of the soldiers is called a salary, right? You get paid so that you could buy the salt that you need. It's a salary. How many of you know that if you're worth your salt, you want to get paid, right? And so we have this word. How many value your salary? Anyone value your salary? Any, any pastoral staff here, you value your salary? <laughs> Just check in, right? Right? We value our salary. It has worth to us. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You have value and you have worth. If we jump off of last week's message, Ephesians 5, uh, Jesus had talked to his disciples about how they were outsiders. 
Uh, at the end of uh, Ephesians 5, 11, and 12, he talks about being persecuted for being outsiders, outsiders to the political scene. We know that Jesus' first followers were Jewish followers who were under the oppression, under the, throne, the thumb of Rome. So they were political outsiders. We also see that they were religious outsiders. They were a sect. They were the followers of this new way of teaching, this way of Jesus that was in opposition to the ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the traditional Jewish uh, following. So they were outsiders. And to these outsiders and outcasts, Jesus is saying, you're undervalued and you're unrecognized by the political scene. You're undervalued and you're unrecognized in the religious scene. Even in social circles, you are undervalued and unrecognized. But he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But it wasn't just about their value. It was also a correlation to salt's intrinsic properties. If you were to look at Mark's recording of this, uh, of this teaching, Mark 9.50, uh, this is what Mark records. He says, salt is good for seasoning, but it loses, if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Jesus wants you to be salty and lit, right? What Jesus is saying in this world needs more of a generous sprinkling of his followers, bringing their influence, bringing the character and perspective of God's kingdom to this planet. How many know that sin isn't effective in the salt shaker? No one asks for salt just so that you can have it on your table, right? You gotta pour out a generous helping all over those potatoes, right? You gotta pour out a generous helping all over those green beans, whatever it is. Some, some cooking needs more salt than others, right? And you just gotta pour it out on that salt shaker, bringing influence of the kingdom of God where you are. It needs to be stirred in to what's cooking. I told you a couple weeks ago when I was making spaghetti, and I just kept adding more and more. And as the worst I got, I read online to combat garlic, you gotta add salt. So I added more and more. You need to stir it in. And don't take my recipe for spaghetti, it was gross. But, <laughs> but that's a different illustration. What I'm saying right now is we need to be poured out and stirred in to the culture that we live in. We need a strong Christian community that stands counterculture to our society. Now some uh, faith backgrounds have taken this to mean that we need to be countercultural and uh, to uh, show a different way by being out of the way. They are gonna cloister themselves off. They're going to be separate from the world and live countercultural by being separated from the world. But how many know Jesus saying salt gets seasoned? The seasoning of the kingdom is to be interspersed and mixed into the culture. You need to be stirred in, baked in. You need to be spread out in a generous helping. In order for salt to be effective, it needs to be stirred into the mixture. Some of you are uh, barbecuers. You need to get that rubbed into the meat. You gotta get that, that rub in there real nice and good, tenderizing that steak. And now that I got you thinking about steak, let's keep going. We need people of the kingdom of God to permeate the culture, to bring kingdom ethics and awareness to education, to politics, to wherever you work. There's a debate right now whether or not there is a separation of church and state. How many know that that's a misnomer? That's an American thing, first off. Second thing, historically, it was to be separate the state from interfering in the ways of the church. It was never meant to be originating that church needs to separate itself from state. 
It was meaning that the state can't overimpose itself on the church. It can't dictate the ways of God. It was meant to be separating the church and the state to have the, the freedom of religion and the freedom to serve God. But we've taken it, and some people have taken it to mean that we can't have Christians in politics, that we can't have Christian teachers, that we can't have Christians in society, that they need to be kept quiet, to be kept down. Don't share that faith. Keep it to yourself. How many know Jesus is saying we need to have the kingdom of God interspersed throughout all of our culture, right? It's important. Here's why it's important, because Jesus talks about the, the, uh, the principles, the intrinsic value of salt. How many know that salt promotes healing? I remember as a kid, every time I'd get a sore throat, the very first thing my mom would do is she would make me gargle with salt water, right? Salt water promotes healing. Even as far back as 1600 BC, we have uh, ancient Egyptian papyruses talking about uh, medical uh, use of salt to treat infection and to combat inflammation. We've well known that salt promotes healing. How many know that we're surrounded by brokenness, hurt, and pain? and our friends, and our neighbors. Every single day we see fractures in our society. And our world desperately needs some people of the kingdom of God to promote healing, to come and promote healing. One of the ways we do this, how do we do this, is how we talk. I love in Colossians 4, verse uh, 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul, he says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, and season with salt so that you know how to answer everyone. We need some more Christians with salty language. I don't mean cuss out your neighbor. I mean to bring healing, to be speaking life, to be speaking uh, uh, healing and speaking of the value of Christ over their life. Imagine if every conversation that you had, your aim was to lift someone up. Your aim was to inspire them. Your aim was to encourage them. Your aim was to point them to the value that Jesus Christ puts over their life. That was a conversation. If that was a salty nature, trying to work that in, imagine how our world would respond. Salt promotes healing. And at the same time, salt preserves from decay. The refrigerator that we all take for granted didn't come into existence until 1913 for the common household. Right? Before that, we would use salt to preserve their food. Jesus is talking to an agrarian uh, and an ancient Near Eastern uh, context to these people who would have been familiar with preserving their food by rubbing salt in it. Salt would uh, eliminate bacteria by absorbing the bacteria and putting salt molecules in its place. How do you know for you and for me, we bring the character and the nature of the kingdom of God the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being a restrainer. When we talk about sin and evil, right, we're not just talking about some uh, fantasy or sci-fi. The Bible says that there is a battle between good and evil. The Bible says that there is an enemy whose plan and purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. There's an evil force, but there's also a restraining force. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life to the full. And so as Christians, as we come and we bring the nature and the character of the kingdom of God, we're replacing that bitter bacteria with the love and the grace and the joy of the kingdom of God. I think the idea of preserving is important for us as Christians. 
You know, there's a lot of political conversations, a lot of uh, fluidity in our in thinking. And we've been talking about this idea for a long time, that when you replace the idea of truth with this idea of look with inside yourself to know what's true, this is where we get this idea of truth is fluid, truth is subjective, truth is whatever you want it to be, live your truth. Bible says that there's only one truth and the truth is Jesus Christ. He's a person. And when we have the person of Jesus Christ and the presence of Jesus Christ, we can't have the person without having that person's principles and his teaching. You can't just have a good vibe without having the principles and teaching of Jesus Christ. And so as we are in this society and we're being continually pushed to the, the fringes, we are to be the ones that are bringing preservation to the culture by continually pointing to the truth but doing it in a salty way. Not with curses, but saying, hey, there's life, there's preservation, there's love, there's joy, there's peace. And I found it in Jesus Christ. How many know that salt provokes thirst? If you've ever eaten at McDonald's, you know this is true. <laughs> Shout out McDonald's, sponsor me if you want. I'll wear your shirt. <laughs> For over a decade, I was a youth pastor. And every Friday night, we would go to McDonald's after youth. I swear I put someone's kid through college. I, I think someone, I was there religiously every week for 10 years. And every Saturday I'd wake up uh, after Friday night youth and my mouth would be so dry and thirsty and my lips would be chapped from all those wonderful McDonald's. Do you like McDonald's burgers, Ralph? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Of course you do. I'm there, buddy. Let's go. Tuesday after staff meeting. Anybody wants to meet us, we'll be at McDonald's eating burgers. Except for, no, we won't carry chicken burger. How about that? All right. Okay. And so you know that salt provokes thirst, right? So we should have such an impact in our neighbors that they're looking at us going, how much love do you have? How much joy do you have? How do you have peace when things seem to be crazy around you? How, how, what's going on in your life? It should provoke thirst. I need what you need. I mean, I need what you have is what I was trying to say, right? I need what you have. We should be winsome as followers of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who stood up in the middle of a service one day in the middle of a religious festival in John 7, 37. And it says on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and he shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me, come and drink for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not entered into his glory. Jesus saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. There should be a lot of thirsty people coming to Bethel going, we want what you have. We're thirsty. Can you get me a drink? Literally last Friday, I was in my office. Someone came to the door and said, can you give me a drink, right, of water. They were literally saying water. Can I have a drink of water, please? But I was just saying, imagine people coming to church going, we're thirsty. We need a drink. We heard you have something that can quench my thirst. I don't know what time it is. I got no watch, so I, got, I have excuse today. Jesus is my kind of guy. Because you know, we just read it. He, he loves a good illustration. And so he, he switches up word pictures. He jumps to a different image. And he says, you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. How many of you have ever been left in the dark? Anyone? Left in the dark. We mean it to mean that there's some plans we're not a part of. We're out of the loop. 
We're ignorant, we're uninformed when it comes to the kingdom of God and healing from our brokenness, healing, uh, salvation from our sin, being restored to God. Jesus doesn't want anyone left in the dark. In John 8, 12, he says that I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You know, the world contains a lot of darkness. You don't even have to watch the news very much to know that that's the case. Unthinkable violence, uh, depravity. Last yesterday, I believe, was the 500th day of the Ukrainian-Russian war, right? We think of abuse and brokenness, despair. I think a lot of people wonder at times, is the world getting worse? To be honest with you, I don't really think so. I would be hard-pressed to look back in history and find, like, the golden years. Uh, we look back in history, we see that humanity has uh, continuously been consistent. Uh, I, I think that we see the level of devastation and pain that we've inflicted upon ourselves throughout the generations. And, and I, I think that, that that's the sin nature has been consistent. Uh, in Acts 3.19, uh, it says that Jesus came into this world for this very fact that it was dark and broken. In Acts uh, 3.19, it says judgment is based on this fact that God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Paul says in Romans 1.30 that they are continuously inventing new ways of sinning. I know there's been a lot of years since Paul wrote those words, right? We seem to be always finding new ways of pushing God out of our lives. But it's into this exact condition of darkness that Jesus says, you don't have to be left in the dark, but you can come and have the light that leads to life. You know, I had to buy some new solar garden lights this year because the dog that lives at my house I've told you about. <laughs> one night last year, I had a party and I put lights out for one night. I knew the dog would eat them and I put them out for one night and forgot about them in one night. She ate all six of them. <laughs> Here's the thing about a solar light though. Solar light doesn't produce power on its own, right? It needs to be in the presence of the sun. It needs to be charged in the presence of the sun. I think that's a good illustration for us that we need to have our lives in the presence of the Son of God to be charged, to be transformed so that we can reflect brightly his light. And here's the other thing, that in my backyard, one solar light, it looks lame. doesn't do very much, right? Especially those little LED bulbs. It hardly does anything, right? But you put a bunch of them back there and it changes the atmosphere, it changes, it becomes inviting. It changes the vibe, changes the environment. Jesus isn't talking about you, that you are the light. He's talking to them uh, corporately. Together, you are the light, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Together, church, we are the light of God in Penticton. We are the light of God in the Okanagan. And not just Bethel Church. I thought we're gonna go to Giro Park, Gyro Park, Giro, whatever it is, I don't even know. Whatever. We're gonna go to the park. We're gonna be the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all the churches together worshiping our Lord. I love that it's not one solitary light, but together, this continuous glow. Uh, he says, no one puts a takes a, a lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, it's put on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. How many know that light wasn't meant to be hidden? Especially in Jesus' day. You've got to remember what he was talking about. Light for him is fire, right? When you're lit, you're on fire. No one puts a fire under a covering, right? That's just bad news. You put it out for all to see. Light is indiscriminate. 
It brings blessing to everyone. Light just doesn't bless those that it agrees with. It doesn't just light up and bless those who believe the same as it does. It lights up indiscriminately and provides light and warmth and the presence of God to everyone. That's what the light of Jesus is. So what effect are we having in our neighborhood? Running out of time, so you know what I'm doing? I'm gonna, change, I'm gonna chop. We're gonna chop. We're gonna chop. We're gonna edit. We're gonna edit together here. Ephesians 5 8 says this Once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. I know light provides perspective. If you've ever been in the dark and you had like your jeans on the chair and you turn the light off and you're like, oh my goodness, there's someone in my room. And then you like turn the light back on. Oh, no, it's my jeans, right? You forgot, right? Our world needs perspective. Our world needs to be reminded of the sanctity of life. As we're wrestling with conversations like the political conversations surrounding MAID and all of those things, what is a life worth living? We need people of the gospel to be life is worth living because it's the life that Jesus Christ gives us. There's value. Don't let life uh, bring, or, or darkness bring distortion and uh, uh, bad perspective. Light provides guidance. Jesus said, you'll have my light and my life will lead you to life. How many know that in the Bible, the very first recorded saying of, Jesus, or of God in Genesis chapter one was this saying, let there be light. God has always wanted there to be light. God has always wanted to illuminate, illuminate his earth and the hearts of his creation. So this morning, God is saying, let there be light. Be salty and be lit in your neighborhood. Be salty and lit where you work, in your schools. Be salty and lit in your neighborhoods. And it's not just for your families, but there's other people's families too that they are praying for someone like you to come alongside of them and point them to Jesus. Now really quickly, I told the worship team and uh, we, gotta, we gotta wrap up, I know, I understand. But I have eight ways for you to be missional. <laughs> and I don't have my watch, so let's dive in. No, I'm just kidding. Eight ways to be missional. Jonathan Dodson says this. Don't make the mistake of making missional another thing to add to your schedule. Instead, make your existing schedule missional. When I'm talking about being salty and lit, I'm not saying, hey, here's something else you need to do this week. What I'm saying is while you're doing what you're already doing, why don't you do it with the intentionality of bringing people to Jesus, of being salt and light where you are. Real quickly, number one, ways that Jonathan Dodson recommends that we could be missional in our everyday life is this, eat with non-Christians. How many know that most of us eat three meals a day, right? If we make a habit of sharing some of those meals with people who believe differently than we do, who haven't met the gospel, how many know there's a Christian subculture? We love hanging out together. We love hanging out with people who believe the same and have a common interest as we do. But finding a coworker, finding a neighbor to eat with, do it. Number two says, walk, don't drive. Make yourself accessible. Be in your neighborhood. Walk to the mailbox. Get a dog. If you want one, I can lend one to you. <laughs> Take your kids to the school bus. I have some kids I can lend to you too. 
But be deliberate in striking up conversations. Some of us, we hate when people talk to us. We're like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna say? Right, but being deliberate. How can you be salt and light without being intentional? Be regular. Instead of hopping all over from this gas station to that coffee shop, be a regular at some places where you get to know some people, you get to know their names, you get to pray for them, you get to establish relationship. Hobby with non-Christians, there you go, right? Find a hobby that you share and be prayerful and intentional, have fun and be winsome, just be you. And point people to Jesus, talk to your coworkers, there's one. <laughs> Take your breaks with intentionality. Instead of going out to your car at break time, sit in the break room and, and get to know what your coworkers are interested in. Volunteer with nonprofits, finding a way to engage the city, participate in city events. I love that some of you are not here today because you're at the Grand Fondo serving. That's amazing. Whatever your passion is and using it to engage with other people. I love that. But pray for the city, love the city, participate in the city. Love your neighbors and serve them. Probably a pie or a cake could go a long way, just saying. But this is what Jonathan says. He says, mission is not an event we tack on to our already busy lives. It is our life. Being salty and lit. Each and every day, each and everywhere I go, it's the plan and purpose, it's the intended design that God has for you and for me. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion together. If you have your emblems, you can take those and we're going to participate in just a second. And, and Holly, would you just lead us as we prepare our hearts uh, for that moment? And as you do, ask yourself, how am I being salty and lit in my neighborhood? How am I being salty and lit in my workplace, in the places where I play, in the places I do my hobbies? Jesus, would you reveal to us, God, not how we can add more to our lives, but how we can be more seasoned and more light in the things that we're already doing to live with intention and purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.